Chapter 37 of The Pretty Lady by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 37 The Invisible Powers. Several times already the rumour had spread in the promenade that the promenade would be closed on a certain date, and the promenade had not been closed. But tonight it was stated that the promenade would be closed at the end of the week, and everybody concerned knew that the prophecy would come true. No official notice was issued. No person who repeated the tale could give a reliable authority for it. Nevertheless, for some mysterious reason, it convinced. The rival promenade had already passed away. The high, invisible powers who ruled the world of pleasure were moving at the behest of powers still higher than themselves, and the cloakroom attendants, in their frivolous, tiny aprons, shared murmuringly behind plesh portieres in the woe of the ladies with large hats. The review being a failure, the auditorium was more than a half empty. In the promenade, to each man, there were at least five pretty ladies, and the ladies looked gloomily across many rows of vacant seats at the bright proscenium, where jocularities of an exacerbating tedium were being enacted. Not that the jocularities were inane beyond the usual, but failure made them seem so. None had the slightest idea why the review had failed, for precisely similar reviews, concocted according to the same recipe and full of the same jocularities, executed by the same players at the same salaries, had crowded the theatre for many months together. It was an incomprehensible universe. Christine suddenly shrugged her shoulders and walked out. What use in staying to the end? It was long after ten o'clock, and an exquisite faint light lingering in the sky still revealed the features of the people on the streets. The man who had devoted half a life to the ingenious project of lengthening the summer days by altering clocks was in his disappointed grave. But victory had come to him there, for statesmen had at last proved the possibility of that which they had always maintained to be impossible, and the wisdom of that which they had always maintained to be idiotic. The voluptuous divine melancholy of evening June descended upon the city from the sky, and even sounds were beautifully sad. The happy progress of the war could not exorcise this soft, omnipotent melancholy. Yet the progress of the war was nearly all that could be desired. Verdun was held, and, if Fort Vaux had been lost, there had been compensation in the fact that the enemy, through the gesture of the Crown Prince in allowing the captured commander of the fort to retain his sword, had done something to rehabilitate themselves in the esteem of mankind. Lord Kitchener was drowned but the discovery had been announced that he was not indispensable. Indeed, there were those who said that it was better thus. The Easter Rebellion was well in hand. Order was understood to reign in an island hidden behind the black veil of the censorship. The mighty naval battle of Jutland had quickly transformed itself from a defeat into a brilliant triumph. The disturbing prices of food were about to be reduced by means of a committee. In America, the Republican forces were preparing to eject President Wilson in favour of another Hughes who could be counted upon to realise the world destiny of the United States. An economic conference was assembling in Paris with the object of cutting Germany off from the rest of the human race after the war. And, in eleven days, the Russians had made prisoners of 150,000 Austrians, and Brusilov had just said, This is only the beginning. Lastly, the close prospect of the resistless Allied Western offensive, which would deracinate Prussian militarism, was uplifting men's minds. 
Christine walked nonchalantly and uninvitingly through the streets, quite unresponsible to the exhilaration of events. Marta, she called when she'd let herself into the flat. Contrary to orders, the little hall was in darkness. There was no answer. She lit the hall and passed into the kitchen, lighting it also. There, in the terrible and incurable squalor of Marta's own kitchen, Marta's apron was thrown untidily across the back of the solitary Windsor chair. She knew then that Marta had gone out, and in truth, although very annoyed, she was not altogether surprised. Marta had a mysterious love affair. It was astonishing, in view of the intensely aphrodisiacal atmosphere in which she lived, that Marta did not continually have love affairs. But the day of love had seemed for Marta to be over, and Christine found great difficulty in getting her even to leave the flat, save on necessary household errands. On the other hand, it was astonishing that any man should be attracted by the fat slattern. The moth now fluttering round her was an Italian waiter, as to whom Christine had learnt that he was being unjustly hunted by the Italian military authorities. Hence the mystery necessarily attaching to the love affair. Being French, Christine despised him. He called Marta by her right name of Marta, and Christine had more than once heard the pair gabbling in the kitchen in Italian. Just as though she had been a conventional bourgeoise, Christine now accused Marta of ingratitude because the woman was subordinating Christine's convenience to the supreme exigencies of fate. A man's freedom might be in the balance, Marta's future might be in the balance, but supposing that Christine had come home with a gallant and no femme de chambre to do service? She walked about the flat, shut the windows, drew the blinds, removed her hat, removed her glove, stretched them, put her things away. She gazed at the two principal rooms, at the soiled numbers of La Vie Parisienne and the cracked bric-a-brac in the drawing-room, at the rent in the lace bed-cover, and the foul mess of toilet apparatus in the bedroom. The forlorn emptiness of the place appalled her. She had been quite fairly successful in her London career. Hundreds of men had caressed her and paid her with compliments and sweets and money. She had been really admired. The flat had had gay hours. Unmistakable aristocrats had yielded to her. And she had escaped the five scourges of her profession. It was all over. The chapter was closed. She saw nothing in front of her but decline and ruin. She had escaped the five scourges of her profession, but part of the price of this immunity was that, through keeping herself to herself, she had not a friend. Despite her profession and because of the prudence with which she exercised it, she was a solitary, a recluse. Yes, of course she had Gilbert. She could count upon Gilbert to a certain extent, to a considerable extent. But he would not be eternal, and his fancy for her would not be eternal. Once, before Easter, she had had the idea that he meant to suggest to her an exclusive liaison. Foolish. Nothing, less than nothing, had come of it. He would not be such an imbecile as to suggest such a thing to her. Miracles did not happen, at any rate, not that kind of miracle. In the midst of her desolation, an old, persistent dream revisited her. The dream of a small country cottage in France, with a dog, a faithful servant, respectability, good name, works of charity, her own praying stool in the village church. She moved to the wardrobe and unlocked one of the drawers beneath the wide doors. And, rummaging under the linen and under the photographs under the linen, she drew forth a package and spread its contents on the table in the drawing room, 
her securities, her bonds of the city of Paris, ever increasing. Gilbert had tried to induce her to accept more attractive investments, but she would not, never. These were her consuls, part of her religion. Bonds of the city of Paris had fallen in value, but not in her dogmatic esteem. The passionate little miser that was in her surveyed them with pleasure, even with assurance, but they were still far too few to stand for the realisation of her dream, and she might have to sell some of them soon in order to live. She replaced them carefully in the drawer, with dejection unabated. When she glanced at the table again, she saw an envelope. Inexplicably, she had not noticed it before. She seized it in hope, and recognised in the address the curious hand of her landlord. It contained a week's notice to quit. The tenancy of the flat was weekly. This was the last blow. All the invisible powers of London were conspiring together to shatter the profession. What in the name of the Holy Virgin had come over the astounding, incomprehensible city? Then there was a ring at the bell. Marta? No, Marta would never ring. She had a key and she would creep in. A lover? A rich, spendthrift, kind lover? Hope flickered anew in her desolated heart. It was the other pretty lady, a newcomer, who lived in the house. A rather stylish woman of about thirty-five, unusually fair, with regular features and a very dignified carriage, indeed not unimposing. They had met once at the foot of the stairs. Christine was not sure of her name. She proclaimed herself to be Russian, but Christine doubted the assertion. Her French had no trace of a foreign accent, and in view of the achieved merits of the Russian army, ladies were finding it advantageous to be of Russian blood. Still, she had a fine cosmopolitan air to which Christine could not pretend. They engaged each other in glances. I hope I did not disturb you, madame. Not at all, madame. I am obliged to open the door myself, because my servant is out. I thought I heard you come in, and so... No, interrupted Christine, determined not to admit the defeat of having returned from the promenade alone. I have not been out. Probably it was my servant you heard. Ah, without doubt. Will you give yourself the trouble to enter, madame? Ah, exclaimed the Russian in the sitting-room. You will excuse me, madame, but what a beautiful photograph. You are too amiable, madame. A friend had it done for me. They sat down. You are deliciously installed here, said the Russian perfunctorily, looking round. Now, madame, I have been here only three weeks, and tonight I receive a notice to quit. Shall I be indiscreet if I ask if you have received a similar notice? This very evening, said Christine, in secret still more disconcerted by this further proof of a general plot against human nature. She was about to add, I found it here on my return home, but remembering her fib managed to stop in time. Well, madame, I know little of London. Without doubt you know London to the bottom. Is it serious, this notice? I think so. Quite serious? Christine said. You see, there is a crisis. It is the war that in London has led to the discovery that men have desires. Of course it will pass, but... Oh, of course, but it is grotesque, this crisis. It is perfectly grotesque, Christine agreed. You do not by hazard know where one can find flats to let? I hear speak of Bloomsbury and of Longacre, but it seems to me that those quarters... I am in London since now more than eighteen months, said Christine, and as for all those things I know little. I have lived here in this flat all the time, and I go out so rarely. The Russian put in with eagerness. 
Oh, I also, I go out, so to speak, not at all. I thought I'd seen you once in the promenade at the... Yes, it is true, interrupted the Russian quickly. I went from curiosity for distraction. You see, since the war I have lived in Dublin. I have there a friend, very highly placed in the administration. He married, and lived terrible hours during the revolt. I decided to come to London, especially as... However, I do not wish to fatigue you with all that. Christine said nothing. The Irish rebellion did not interest her. She was in no mood for talking about the Irish rebellion. She had convinced herself that all Sinn Feiners were in German pay, and naught else mattered. Never, she thought, had the British government carried ingenuousness further than in this affair. Given a free hand, Christine, with her strong, direct common sense, would have settled the Irish question in forty-eight hours. The Russian, after a little pause, continued, I merely wished to ask you whether the notice to quit was serious, not a trick for raising the rent. Christine shook her head to the last clause. And then, if the notice was quite serious, whether you knew of any flats not too dear, not that I mind a good rent if one receives the value of it and, and is left tranquil. The conversation might at this point have taken a more useful turn if Christine had not felt bound to hold herself up against the other's high tone of indifference to expenditure. The Russian, in demanding tranquillity, had admitted that she regularly practised the profession, or, as English girls strangely called it, the business, and Christine could have followed her lead into the region of gossiping and intimate realism where detailed confidences are enlighteningly exchanged. But the tone about money was a challenge. "'I should have been enchanted to be of service to you,' said Christine, "'but I know nothing. I go out less and less. As for this notice, I smile at it.' I have a friend upon whom I can count for everything. I have only to tell him, and he will put me among my own furniture at once. He has indeed already suggested it. So that je m'en fiche. I also, said the Russian, my new friend, he is a colonel sent from Dublin to London, has insisted upon putting me among my own furniture. But I have refused so far, because one likes to know more of a gentleman, does one not one, before... Truly, murmured Christine. And there is always Paris, said the Russian. But I thought you were from Petrograd. Yes, but I know Paris well. Ah, there is only Paris. Paris is a second home to me. Can one get a passport easily for Paris? I mean, supposing the air raids grow too dangerous again? Why not, madame? If one has one's papers. To get a passport from Paris to London, that would be another thing. I admit I, I see that you play, the Russian added rising with a gesture towards the piano. I have heard you play. You play with true taste. I know, for when a girl, I played much. You flatter me. Not at all. I think your friend plays, too. Ah, said Christine, he, it is an artist, that one. They turned over the music, exchanged views about waltzes, became enthusiastic, laughed, and parted amid manifestations of good breeding and goodwill. As soon as Christine was alone, she sat down and wept. She could no longer contain her distress. Paris gleamed before her. But no, it was a false gleam. She could not make a new start in Paris during the war. The adventure would be too perilous. The adventure might end in a licensed house. And yet, in London, what was there in London but, ultimately, the pavement? And the pavement meant complications with the police, with prowlers, with other women. It meant all the scourges of the profession, 
including probably alcoholism. It meant prostitution, to which she had never sunk. She wished she had been killed outright in the air raid. She had an idea of going to the oratory the next morning, and perhaps choosing a new virgin and soliciting favour of the image thereof. She sobbed, and sobbing, suddenly jumped up and ran to the telephone. And even as she gave Gilbert's number, she broke it in the middle with a sob. After all, there was Gilbert. End of chapter 37